Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Ira Chesnoff, who will discuss the impact of drug and alcohol usage on child development. This episode is the first in a two-part series with Dr. Chesnoff, so be sure to tune in next week for part two. Ira J. Chesnoff, MD, is an award-winning author, research, and lecturer, is president of NTI Upstream, and a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. He is one of the nation's leading researchers in the field of child development and the effects of maternal alcohol and drug use on the newborn infant and child. Dr. Chasnoff received his medical degree from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. He has authored 11 books. His most recent book, The Mystery of Risk, explores the biological and environmental factors that impact the ultimate development of alcohol and drug-exposed children and presents practical strategies for helping children reach their full potential at home and in the classroom. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everybody, and great to have you back for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Today, I'm so fortunate to be able to speak with uh, Dr. Ira Chesnoff, who has a great deal of experience and has done lots of research in looking at the effects of drugs um, and alcohol in utero and the impact of that on kids later. Um, so welcome, Dr. Chesnoff. Thanks. Thank yes. Um, could you share uh, a little bit about how you got into this specialty area? Sure. I was uh, working uh, in my early years after residency, after my specialty training in pediatrics, I was uh, volunteering to run a um, developmental follow-up clinic for babies who came out of the neonatal ICU. And it was during that period in running that program that I noticed that there were some babies who looked completely different from the other babies we were seeing. Uh, going back in their histories, their mothers had um, come into the hospital with no prenatal care, delivered, went home, and the babies were in the neonatal ICU for six weeks or so, going through uh, heroin withdrawal. And uh, so as I began to look into the issue, there was nothing written about that phenomenon. Uh, and so I went to some friends, literally. And uh, we put together one of the first uh, comprehensive drug treatment programs for pregnant women in the nation. Uh, my obstetric friends ran the obstetric component. Uh, folks from the addictions center uh, ran the addictions. And I was in charge of looking at the babies and following them up long term. Uh, so it was a completely volunteer effort on everyone's part. Uh, and it just grew way beyond uh, anything we ever expected. Wow. So it sounds, you know, so innovative. And, um, you know, sometimes I hear something like that and I think, were we doing better with some of the, these kinds of things this many years ago than we're doing now? Um, because that just sounds like such a, a great way that people came together to look at this. Yeah. Um, yeah, this whole idea of, Volunteer work uh, seems to not be so popular anymore. 
Yeah. But, uh, we all took it on because we really felt like it was the right thing to do. And quite literally, we didn't know what to do with the babies. And uh, we had to, it took some very careful work with them over a period of a few years to really learn what the infants really needed. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, as you have studied this and given talks about this and treated children with um, these, uh, a history of exposure in utero, what are some of the, the misconceptions or, or what are some of the things that you come across over and over that people are just not understanding about this? Well, you know, back until the 1940s, uh, the placenta was always perceived as a barrier. So that anything a woman took, the placenta protected the fetus from that. It was with the thalidomide epidemic, uh, which uh, occurred in the 1940s through the early 50s, people began to recognize that this medication, thalidomide, was crossing the placenta and actually um, causing significant severe malformations of the infants. And uh, it was at this time, it began to be recognized that the placenta is not a barrier, it's a sieve. Now, helping people understand that anything the woman takes during pregnancy will cross over the placenta uh, is one of the first steps. Uh, the second then is beginning to look at specific agents. Now, I don't think we have any trouble convincing people that using heroin during pregnancy or methamphetamine or cocaine uh, is not good. That's an easy one. Where we run into problems uh, are with alcohol and marijuana. And what we're seeing now is that there are still physicians who are telling pregnant women uh, it's okay to drink during pregnancy. Uh, we also, with the widespread legalization of marijuana, uh, we see a lack of any policies that are helping the public understand that marijuana does, in fact, have a an effect on uh, prenatal or, or fetal brain development. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think those are our two, currently our two biggest challenges, uh, alcohol and marijuana use during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. You know, and, it's, and I've been thinking about this um, as I knew we were going to be talking and wondering if there's going to be an increase because, you know, drinking wine has really come into fashion. And there are many people, women drinking wine that maybe historically didn't drink a lot of alcohol. There's just a, a, a larger consumption of it. It's kind of fashionable, you know? <laughs> um, and so I, I'm wondering what impact that might be having. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the presentations I'm sometimes asked to do is, uh, it's kind of a fun presentation. It traces the history of how alcohol and tobacco were marketed to women. And I go way back into the early 1900s and show magazine ads uh, in the early 1900s, uh, and you can see them evolve. And where it becomes really blatant is during the time of World War II, when women were moving into the workplace. And the ads in the 1940s were all about uh, women getting to choose to have to smoke cigarettes or smoke or, or drink wine or, or liquor uh, based on uh, the rights and for independence and women beginning to make their own choices uh, in the 1950s uh, you look at the ads they're very romanticized 
and all the models advertising uh, for alcohol use by women or tobacco use really look like Marilyn Monroe. They're all blonde and all look like Marilyn Monroe, there's no question. By the 1960s, you see the ads changing and uh, it's one of the really interesting things, the ads look like, the women in the ads look like Jane Fonda. Uh, Independence, one of my favorite ads from the uh, mid 60s shows two women on a golf course uh, sitting down under a tree on a bench with their feet up on the table and they've got beer in front of them. And the tagline is, who says beer is a man's drink? Now, there's so much going on there. First of all, the Jane Fonda image for independent women, but also this was the time when women still were fighting to be allowed onto golf courses. So the fact that these two women dressed in pants, by the way, were sitting on a golf course drinking beer, there were so many messages there. Yes. So it brings us up to current time, and a picture of sophistication is having a glass of wine in your hand. Uh, and uh, so when we have done our studies, for example, we did a study for the state of California and had well over 100,000 women in that study, study. And we showed the women most likely to drink alcohol during pregnancy were white, middle class, and living uh, in counties that had wineries. And the more wineries in a county, the higher the rate of alcohol use during the pregnancy. Now, what does that tell us? Is that wine in those wine-producing counties is very much a part of the culture, and no one would think of having a party without serving wine. Mm -hmm. Now, the message that no amount of alcohol is safe to drink during pregnancy gets lost in that cultural milieu of uh, sophisticated wine drinkers. Mm -hmm. So we've seen it evolve over the years. Yeah, because it definitely seems like um, whether it's cultural, whether it's people feeling like they they want to be autonomous and make their own decisions, there's there's some block because I mean I it's been over 25 years now that that I've been working with kids and from hearing your talks and reading articles and books and it's been a consistent message: no alcohol is safe. And you just keep thinking, like, why, why, why won't, why doesn't this catch on that everybody is making sure people know this? And I think, I guess, a lot of it must be some of the things that you're just now talking about. Yeah, it's culture. I mean, marijuana gives us the same picture. Uh, we published an article just uh, about a year ago now that looks at marijuana use in pregnancy and brings all the research together, and we show clearly marijuana is not safe to use during pregnancy. And in fact, there is an ep- a large epidemiologic study that shows that women who smoke marijuana in the first month after conception, just in that first month, when the very basic parts of the fetal brain are forming, women who smoke marijuana, especially during the period 16 to 22 days after conception, have significantly higher rates of their babies being born missing the front part of their brain. It's called anencephaly. Now, how many physicians, much less the public, are aware of that? So when I have a woman come to me and say, oh, yeah, I smoke marijuana, but as soon as I find out I'm pregnant, I'll stop smoking, uh, often it's too late. You know, some significant damage 
could already have been done. Uh, and so from a public health perspective, how do we get the message out? Yes. Well, you know, and that also reminds me of um, something else that I've, I've heard you speak about, and that is binge drinking, you know, and how that can sometimes have more of an impact depending on when it happens. You know, that I think we have this picture of this alcoholic woman waking up every morning and drinking all day or something, yeah. and that um, binge drinking um, could have even more significant impact depending when and how and that idea that you know you're you're out at a party you don't know you're pregnant and yeah so talk to me a little bit about that sure uh i'm often asked uh why we hear about so much about fetal alcohol syndrome in the united states and not in europe france italy where drinking wine especially is very much a part of the culture uh, first of all, there is a high rate of uh, fetal alcohol effects in uh, the European countries. It's just up until recently, it hasn't been talked about that much. Um, but one of the reasons we see we, our rates seem to be so high here is that our culture here is one of binge drinking, drinking to get drunk. And this is especially prominent, we find, uh, for example, among college-age women. College-age men drink every day. That is, they're having some amount of alcohol every day. While college-age women tend to uh, study all week and party on the weekend. And that partying uh, is characterized by binge drinking. And what happens when you binge drink is the fetus is exposed to higher blood alcohol levels and kind of a blast than with chronic drinking. Now, neither is safe, but binge drinking is more dangerous to the fetus than chronic drinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems too, if we're talking about misconceptions and myths and trying to get accurate information out there, it seems like another thing that um, people think you will be able to see certain facial features if a child has, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome or, or, or something. What do you have to say about that? Because I know you have things to say about that. <laughs> well, I think that's very few infants exposed to alcohol, relatively few actually have fetal alcohol syndrome, where the facial features, the intellectual disabilities, everything is just very obvious. The great majority of children prenatally exposed to alcohol look normal. They have normal growth, they have normal facial features, and most of them, their IQ falls into the normal range. The difficulty is they have significant neurobehavioral problems, specifically in learning and behavior. And to point this up, we published an article a couple of years ago now also, I lose track of time, but. Uh, in the last couple of years, we did a study. We took 3,000 children enrolled in our clinic in Chicago and did some sampling and ended up looking at the diagnoses of children before they came to us. So why were they referred to us? Mainly because of behavior problems or other kinds of problems. Uh, so what their diagnoses and what medications they were on when they were referred to us we did, then did our full evaluation and came up with what we consider the correct diagnoses. 
And what we showed when we compared pre versus post evaluation diagnoses, we found that 85.6% of children who had a diagnosis that fell within the fetal alcohol spectrum, 85.6% had been misdiagnosed. They were carrying the whole alphabet of other diagnoses, ADD, ADHD, ODD, uh, bipolar, you know, the list goes on and on. That has tremendous implications for treatment. Yes. Because if, you know, so often, I'll just give an example. We, uh, for a state that asked me to work with them, and I've been working with this particular state uh, for four years now. And so we looked at the child welfare population, at the two to five-year-olds, and among the two to five-year-olds that we, that we looked at their records, there were a number of two and three-year-old children that were already on psychotropic medications for all sorts of wild diagnoses. Uh, and when we looked, it was um, most likely these children had been exposed prenatally. Uh, to alcohol and drugs, but that wasn't taken into the consideration. So when I work with physicians, all I'm asking is if you're evaluating a child for behavioral or learning difficulties, that you put prenatal alcohol and or drug exposure into the differential diagnosis, at least consider it so that uh, you can move in the right direction. And your assessment has to take into account that uh, this child may have been prenatally exposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that piece about assessment is, is so important at so many levels. Um, you know, I work with a lot of children that are adopted or have been in foster care. That, and, and so, um, you know, a lot of times we're looking at those kids and coming up with different diagnoses, sometimes reactive attachment disorder, which has a whole host of problems in and of itself, you know, regardless of who we put it on. Um, but, or like you said, ADHD or ODD or, um, and, you know, it's just, like you said, if, if, if we're not really understand what's going on, treatment can be very different. Yeah. You know, I get a lot of families uh, that come to me, contact me, because their children have had an evaluation and there's no evidence that this child has fetal alcohol spectrum disorders from this evaluation. But you have to look at the evaluations. My advice to professionals and to parents, if you're going to evaluate a child, no matter what age, you need to look at three domains of functioning. The first is neurocognitive, and that takes in things like learning disabilities, IQ, you know, global cognitive functioning, um, uh, executive functioning and memory, uh, both both short-term, long-term, and working memory. So that's one arena. All that has to be evaluated. The second domain is uh, self-regulation. Uh, the the child's regulatory capabilities, uh, regulation of emotions, regulation of behaviors, um, uh, including sensory processing. And then the third area, and this is key, is adaptive functioning. And adaptive functioning is the ability of the child to use what he knows to apply them to daily living skills. And 
this is a, an area that really characterizes fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, all of these other areas are important, uh, but uh, especially th this will help you differentiate, for example, a child with prenatal drug exposure, such as heroin or methamphetamine, from prenatal alcohol exposure. Now, adaptive functioning, uh, if, if you look at the general literature on adaptive functioning, uh, if you measure IQ, everybody knows what IQ is, and AQ, which is the adaptive quotient, if you measure both of those, you'll find in almost all populations, the IQ and AQ will fall into the same level. You know, they're gonna be pretty uh, equal. However, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, no matter where the IQ is, high or low, AQ, adaptive quotient, is significantly lower. And that's been shown in research uh, as well as in, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. And a good example of this in our film, Moment to Moment, which is a film that, uh, a documentary film that explores the lives of four uh, young people ages 18 to 22, uh, all of whom have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, all of whom were adopted early on. Uh, and look at their lives today. One of the young ladies we interview in the film, Kara, um, Kara is in her second year of college. She uh, has an IQ of 125, but she tells the story of how her mother called her at school and said, I have to pick you up after school. We have an appointment. What can I, time can I pick you up? And she looked at the clock on the wall and it was an analog clock, you know, with hands. She said, I don't know. I'm going to have to call you back. And she had to hang up, look at her digital clock and then call her mother back. Hmm. So Kara has an IQ of 125. She's engaging. She's conversational. She's a beautiful young lady but she can't tell time. She doesn't understand money. Uh, and so, and she tells these stories and she recognizes the problems. And her mother has worked with her, her adoptive mother, all these years to get Kara ready to live independently. Uh, but it's a never ending task. Uh, and it's the adaptive skills, the adaptive functioning that most often is the barrier to these young people living uh, independent lives. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you join us next week for part two of our two-part series with Dr. Ira Chesnoff as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.